Welcome to the MBS Podcast. The MBS Podcast is brought to you by Yimby Eugene Springfield. MBS is a nonprofit devoted to making housing more affordable for all residents of our cities. YIMBY stands for Yes in My Backyard because we want to stand for the idea of welcoming diversity into our neighborhoods across all spectrums, including race, socioeconomic status, and housing types. We'll be discussing housing politics and policy on this podcast from a wide array of perspectives, so if you know someone who might want to make their voice heard, please reach out to us at yimbyes at gmail.com. That's Y-I-M-B-Y-E-S at gmail.com or visit the page at yimbyes.org. My name is Daniel Ivey with YMBS. Uh, we're joined today by Lori Hauber with Legal Aid and Eileen Shanti with St. Vincent de Paul. We're going to be talking about a variety of things uh, relating to uh, parking in Eugene and how it ties into uh, homelessness and affordable housing. Um, but uh, for starters, I want to kind of just uh, get a little bit to know uh, the two of you and uh, kind of ask some questions. We'll start with uh, Lori. Um, I'd love to uh, learn about kind of how you got started with legal aid and uh, and what it is you do. Sure. <clears throat> so I started with legal aid about a year and a half ago after moving from St. Louis, Missouri to Eugene. And my background is in nonprofit law and community economic development. Um, in that capacity, I did some work in affordable housing. And um, so when I moved here, I made the decision that I wanted to pursue a career in directed more toward affordable housing. Some of that was generated by, um, I was the editor-in-chief of what's called the American Bar Association Journal on Affordable Housing and Community Development Law, which is a mouthful. Um, But (laughs) so I've had a fair amount of exposure about affordable housing, policy and practices at the national, <clears throat> excuse me, national level. And so that was part of what made me want to pursue this position at Legal Aid, where my exclusive focus is on affordable housing, was to see how I could make an impact at a local level based upon my prior experiences. Very cool. And so for the people that might not know, can you talk a little bit about what Legal Aid is and what the organization does? So Legal Aid is a nonprofit public interest law firm. It is not government, it is a separate nonprofit, and we provide civil legal representation and assistance to people who are low income, who are facing a wide range of civil legal issues. And I stress civil because we do not do criminal representation. So we have a lot of people who come to us with tenant landlord tenant issues mm-hmm. so that's one of our big areas as is um, domestic violence so we represent people who are victims of domestic violence in trying <clears throat> in trying to remove themselves from those situations and consumer law public benefits foreclosure prevention there's kind of a range mm-hmm. and, and some consumer benefits and sometimes employment law. And I'll just add that legal aids exist all over the country. So every single county in the country is served by a legal aid, each of which has a slightly different set of priorities. And so we're also here in Eugene, we're part of a statewide network called the Oregon Law Center. So even though we're more familiar 
technically known as Legal Aid. Technically, we're Oregon Law Center, which is a statewide Mm -hmm. network. We are one office of that network. Yeah, very cool. And I, I know that you mentioned there, uh, tenant law is a big thing that you're involved in, not to spend too much time on it, but um, we had Josh uh, Caraco on a previous episode with CETA, um, and I understand you're involved with um, some training around uh, the, the tenant protection hotline that, they're, that they've got going on. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's a, I, I just, I, you know, from the Yimby standpoint, I love the idea of getting more protections into the hand of tenants. So, yeah, just kind of whatever brief information you could share about sure. that. Sure. I love the hotline, too. Yeah. And, yes, we conducted a training. When I say we, there's another attorney in our office who focuses on landlord-tenant law and is excellent at what he does. His name is Elliot. And El- so Elliot and I conducted a training for volunteers who are interested in either working on the hotline or in some other way connecting to CETA. Mm -hmm. And the plan is to continue offering those trainings whenever there's a cohort of volunteers who want to begin participation in the hotline. And so the training is, is directed toward the legal issues that people need to be able to spot on a phone call. Mm-hmm. And so it's not training people how to resolve those legal issues, but it's helping people know how to troubleshoot that's based smart. upon the yeah. information they're getting. Yeah, that seems like in terms of being a frontline person, that would be the, you know, the, uh, triaging the situation would be ideal, so. Yes, and there is another hotline in Portland okay. that has had success with this. And cool. the idea is Hopefully with this hotline, we can prevent problems from escalating mm-hmm. and help prevent people from getting evicted and losing their homes, which, as we all know, is devastating. Yeah, and I mean, Senate Bill 608 helps a little with that right, in terms of no-cause evictions, but they have to be in the unit for a year before they get that, that layer of protection, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Um, okay, so yeah, moving on to Eileen. Thank you so much, Lori. Uh, just wanted to hear from you a little bit about kind of where you know how you got involved in the nonprofit world and then maybe um, how you how you kind of got involved with St. Vincent de Paul. Um, sure so I started in um, Chicago where I got my master's degree at the University of Chicago in urban education and teacher leadership so I've actually come by way of education my focus was on um, race class and culture within the systems the education system specific to urban education So I spent time working in Chicago public schools prior to moving to Oregon, and I actually got my job at St. Vincent de Paul working um, and developing and directing the early childhood program at the the shelter at First Place Family Center. So that was creating a program um, of using best practice and therapeutic methods to support not only the children that were in the crisis of homelessness and poverty, but also their families. So that's doing wraparound supports and um, parenting education and that sort of thing. Um, Two years ago, I um, took the job of um, becoming the director of First Place Family Center as a whole. And then over the the course of the last year, that is also included now um, our, our girls' youth house um, here in Eugene. Wow. So now my title is Youth and Family Services Director. So that includes our day center for families, our night shelter for families, um, our parking program, and our youth services. So anything that has to do with children or youth. 
That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I love that um, you kind of went into a little bit there just because I think that so many people think of St. Vincent de Paul primarily as a, as a donation center. But, um, you know, it's a, when you compare it to Goodwill, which is more exclusively a donation center, it's obviously it runs the gamut. There's a lot of services that they offer. Um, I wonder if there's any others off the top of your head just to kind of let people know some of the breadth of what St. Vinny's is up to um, that, like what kind, of, what kind of other services do they offer or what do they do that, that they kind of focus on? Sure, so we're St. Vincent de Paul of Lane County. That means that we have our roots in the St. Vincent de Paul Society that is worldwide, but we are actually our own 5013C. Okay. This gives us the opportunity to kind of create um, ways of doing things that are maybe a little bit different than other St. Vincent de Paul's that you would normally associate. Mm -hmm. So the breadth of our work is actually pretty, pretty large. Um, we are a $54 million nonprofit, and wow. we are one of the largest in, in, in Oregon. Um, so we use our stores, we are what we call an entrepreneurial nonprofit that has a focus of, towards ecology that then fuels our social services. So we do have stores, we have many, many stores, and we make money from that that then goes and directly funds the programs that I run. Mm -hmm. um, we also do mattress recycling, and that's um, for profit, but it also is an ecological model where we take old mattresses, we unstuff them, we use almost every single material that you possibly can, um, recycle, and then we also um, will restuff good mattresses and send them back to our stores. Mm -hmm. And we are a leader in the country doing that. And then we also do, we have affordable housing. We have, um, f we have like 400 units of affordable housing in Lane County. Mm -hmm. We are now, um, developing mobile homes as a way of mobile home parks as a way of more affordable housing because there's such a lack of it in our mm -hmm. community and we have mobile homes um, parks not only in Lane County but also now in Multnomah County so we have right. them in Portland um, we have my department which is youth and family services so that's emergency homeless services for for families and for children and youth and then we have our sister organization which is the Eugene service station and the Lindholm Center so doing what we do the basic services the emergency services the case management but on a singles homeless level and then we also have a whole slew of um, of housing programs, so supported housing programs, and that's everything from runs the gamut from um, veterans housing programs, SSVF, to rapid rehousing, permanent supportive housing, all of those case managed, robust programs that help support people who are making their way out of homelessness to become stable and self sufficient. That's yeah, that's a lot. It that's is. that's yeah. awesome. I, I appreciate that. Um, I uh, you know. I think that people know where to find St. Vincent de Paul if you have, um, you know, more questions or you can you can find them online fairly easily. Specifically, you obviously want to go to the one, uh, you know, focused on Lane County. But, um, but yeah, is, are, is there any um, sort of huge projects that St. Vincent de Paul kind of has on the horizon or, or ways that people can get involved with St. Vincent de Paul if they, if they want to? I mean, is that mm -hmm. stuff that yeah. all available on the website or yeah. can you speak to Yeah, that? on the website you can, there's a volunteer tab or there's, I think it says ways to get involved. So we're always looking for volunteers, both in my department and in other departments. Um, you know, it t it's a big community push to serve the people the way that we do and the capacity that we do. So, you know, we have community volunteers who help make dinners for our night shelter families. We have community volunteers who help do landscaping. We have community volunteers who run our front desk so that my staff can have a, a weekly staff meeting and mm -hmm. everyone's present. I mean, all of those things are part of 
how we ask volunteers to participate. Cool. Um, and then we also, you know, if people want to learn more, our website really is a good a good place, and there's always a, a place to get plugged in, whether it's children or adults or, you know, there's there's tons of opportunities because it's a huge organization. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, we could probably spend all day talking about the different ways that uh, your two organizations help out the community, but um, today I think we're here to talk specifically about, um, you know, the, this issue of, uh, you know, parking availability for um, homeless people who, you know, maybe do have a vehicle and want some place to park and camp, um, but they aren't able to for a variety of reasons, and um, so, uh, you know, to kind of get us started on this i guess just the question you know why are these people using you know why why does this problem exist why are there why is there maybe a bevy of people that um you know have a vehicle but are are waiting for housing of some kind <laughs> we both can go on and on about that yeah. i mean there are a multitude of reasons eileen can probably speak in more detail the a macro level reason is the lack of affordable housing yeah. and right. so people including families, are sometimes on wait lists for more than a year, even mm -hmm. two, years. two three years. And and also, I think, and maybe this is a different podcast, but even the issues with the wait list and people thinking they were on it, but they actually were removed because mm -hmm. they didn't kind of renew their name on the list after six months. So I would say a macro issue is the lack of accessible housing for people at very low incomes. Yeah. And Eileen can speak to individual barriers. Yeah, so I would definitely agree with that. And I also think that that coupled with wage stagnation for low um, earning wage, you know, earners, I think is part, part of the other issue is that we haven't sort of increased the, the cost of living. Our, our payment to people who are making minimum wage doesn't correspond with how much it costs to, to live in this town. Um, so, you know, what we find is, and I can speak to people with families, with children, is that, you know, there's a certain sort of crisis event in their life, they can no longer pay their rent, or they oftentimes, it's not even that, oftentimes it's that their landlord wants to raise their rent and they can't pay their rent anymore, or their landlord wants to sell their house and turn a profit and they cannot live there anymore. And so for whatever reason, they um, become homeless and you know, we are a community that has a shortage of um, shelter shelter for, for people who are unhoused. So um, first place, um, our, our first place annex, our night shelter program, is the only low barrier shelter for um, families here in Eugene. There's also the mission, but they have a lot more stringent barriers that people have to sort of hurdle through in order to be able to get a bed there. And... Um, we only have a capacity to serve 19 families at a time. And so that means that a lot of our families are forced to find a better solution. And a lot of people, the better solution is at least a car has coverage, it has safety. Um, and so that's, that's their, their answer. And so we've kind of created a system that we, that we have a short-term solution because we have a lack of shelter. I think that's the second sort of level is that there's just no affordable housing and then we have a shelter crisis as well where we don't have enough shelter beds to, to, to help people when they're in that, that crisis of 
Yeah, I mean, just in terms of the, just to kind of throw some data out there, one of the stats that we used in our recent um, uh, presentation at the Leadership Eugene Springfield graduation was that the cost to own a home is up 73% and the cost to rent is up 48%, whereas the household income is only increased by 28% in that same time period. That's from the Eugene uh, City Planning and Development Housing Tools and Strategies um, research. And, uh, you know, it's it's huge. And I, you know, and I, and I love that, you know, that a lot of what you're saying was sort of skirting around the idea that a lot of these people are actively employed, right? I mean, they're, oh, yeah. they're, they're making money, they're, they want to they want to be in housing but it's just because of some life event because of this like constant cycle and we talked a lot about this on a previous podcast with Tara Ralph um, who is with DHS there's there's this cycle that occurs that just creates a situation where people are one one bad situation away yeah, sometimes absolutely. you know one missed day of work away from mm-hmm. uh, you know from from being on house and a medical one med- major medical issue yeah. your kid develops has some kind of costly problem Um, the other thing with families is the fear Mm -hmm. and the fear to seek services because they don't want to risk losing their children right and and so and going to options beyond what Eileen talked about depending on the age of the children the family can't stay together so there not only are there very limited options but just the fear of losing one's children, I think in many instances, pushes people to try to stay under the radar, which in many ways then makes their situation worse and can prolong it. Right. That and we have we have um, housing laws that um, make it really hard for people or families who are living in poverty who are in a community of other people living in poverty to help one another out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in my situation with, you know, my social capital, if something really horrible were to happen, I would have a whole slew of friends and family that would help be willing and able to put us up. But if you're renting an apartment and you already have a subsidy and you're in your apartment and it's a low-income apartment or affordable housing unit, um, there are prohibitions from allowing guests to stay overnight. And so we often see people who will open their house because their sister has become homeless and they need a place to stay with their kids. And then all of a sudden, all of the whole, the whole family is evicted. And so now there's not just one nuclear family, but there's two families that are that are. And is that, is that a restriction of some of the specific programs or is that a legal thing? Federal. It's federal HUD restriction. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And, and landlords and that's, so it's also can create, put that into the into their their lease agreement. So that's if HUD agreement. money is used to build that affordable housing, then that's a that's one example of a HUD restriction. Mm-hmm. Right. And, right. And and you know landlords can put it into rental agreements, and that's a way to sort of uh-huh. prohibit certain activities they they foresee happening. But but also what's happening is that it makes it so that. Um, families who grow up in generational poverty have no mechanism in which to support one another without right. becoming really vulnerable themselves. And so we see that often. It's not as simple as just landing on another friend's couch or your, your auntie's or your mom's couch or whatever it is. Um, th- there really literally isn't that capacity to do that for one another. Yeah. And a, a reverberating, of, here's an example of how that kind of rule then reverberates and impacts additional people. I had someone come to me recently who was living in her vehicle, parked outside, down the road from her father's subsidized housing, and but because of the no guest restriction, 
she was trying to care for him, but she couldn't live inside the house. So she was living inside an RV, but then she was illegally parked. So she got a ticket and through that process ended up losing her vehicle. And so now she's living in a tent because she lost what is a better, at least a better source of how of Yeah, shelter. and just to give an idea of what that process looked like, um, so probably got impounded and then she just couldn't afford to get it out of impound or were there like titling issues right. or I mean. Well, so th that's an excellent point and question because so impound, once you get your car impounded, it is a $90 a day <laughs> fee. And Eileen has horror stories on this as well. Yeah, we'll get to those so $90 a day fee. So for many people, after one day or, you know, three days, let's say, you've missed that window. But because then sometimes people can't show proof of ownership, um, for example, people don't transfer title, even though they've paid money for the vehicle right. because they can't afford to transfer title. And right. so then, even if they show up with the $90 the same day to get their car out of impound and have done the other hoops they have to jump through, the tow trunk company will not release it because they're unable to show chain proof of, of owner right. chain of title. So, you know, there's and I have a list and I'm diving into this more deeply, but it's just there's just one obstacle after another. And then what what are we doing? We're remove we're removing people's only form of shelter, which isn't even habitable, and we're creating a worse, a far worse situation for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a good segue if, you know, if Eileen, if you have other um, specific stories or maybe one or two that you can think of where it was just, I know that we talked in, um, you know, the, uh, the class that we were attending as we were kind of in conversations about forming in Eugene Springfield, um, about a situation where there was a family who was mm -hmm. just waiting for, for placement. So yeah, I mean, talk, talk a bit about, you know, maybe some examples you have. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So, I mean, that's that's actually one of the most frustrating experiences that we have with our families because what 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 happens, um, and I can speak to one situation in particular, but there's been a handful of them that have happened this year. Is that in this particular situation, they were they were illegally parked, and um, because they were partially on a yellow, they were. Um, they weren't given notice to move. And their they have vehicle. like it's just like a motorhome. It's at. it's a motorhome. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. And it's, it's literally their house. They have all of their possessions in the world inside of it, um, including their cat. And um, they, it was on a yellow. They were given um, a notice and it was immediately started getting put, um, getting towed. It was getting put up on the tow truck. And they came right as it was kind of in the middle of getting on the tow truck. So, and they said, stop, wait, no, this is our house. We'll move it, we'll move it. Um, and in this particular situation, the um, police officer decided that that's not what that he wanted to do, and so said, "Go ahead and move it." Um, and what that that moment <laughs> caused was this whole cavalcade of ridiculous hoop jumping, like what you were just um, commenting on, that um, was was really traumatic, and also created a whole lot of lift for many different people in the community. So, uh -huh. what happened next was. Um, they, they were able to get their cat out of the RV, but they, thankfully, because then it would have just been stuck in this RV without food or water, um, 
but they weren't able to get any of their possessions. So the they took the um, RV to the impound yard, and um, we worked with with that tow yard, and they have a contract with the police, um, you know, to help do these tows. Um, but like like what was just described, they didn't have the right title, or they didn't have any title, and mainly because they had purchased the vehicle from someone that was also living in poverty, who didn't have a title, right. who purchased it from another person who was living in poverty, who didn't have a title. Right. We had to go five, four people back to find the title. Mm -hmm. So that was the first problem. No getting and into you, the vehicle. And, and was that actually done? Was that? Yeah, we, oh my we, gosh. we did those hoops because that was the only way. Yeah. No getting into the vehicle, no allowing to get clothing. So first, so when the vehicle was originally towed, they were offered a piece of paper that said, are you homeless? Are you having a hard time? Do you need help? Contact First Place Family Center. And what was so hard for us in that moment is that they were a First Place Family Center family. If, if a call could have been made, if we could figure out a way to coordinate somehow, and I'm not playing pointing fingers and placing blame because I know that we all are playing our role and we're doing the best that we can but if we could somehow coordinate so that we could have gotten a call prior to that vehicle getting put on that tow truck we would have figured out a place to put their their RV right. we could have problem solved we could have done that but that but instead they got that piece of paper after the their vehicle was towed away so my organization was then responsible for finding clothes for every member of their family, including their children who are trying to attend school. All of their school book bags are in there. All of their books oh. are in there. Um, you know, the the um, husband in the relationship and the family unit was working. All of his work stuff was in that vehicle. Um, so no no ability to get into the vehicle whatsoever. And then and then on top of that, we had to work really closely with Ray's towing to figure out a solution. And they were so generous and so willing and eager to work wow. with us that they ended up discounting it like. I don't know. I don't even know what percent. You are in business. I am not. But right. I think we ended up paying like $300 and the fee would have been close to $3,000. Wow. I mean, it was it was an enormous. Um, but there's but there's a problem on their end too because if that if that RV had to have been abandoned, they would it has asbestos in it. It is an old RV. So right. they would have been responsible for decommissioning it. So yeah. it's in Ray's Towing's interest to get the thing out of their tow yard yeah. so they don't yeah. have to care for do it and not only that but they would have had to then ask for the person who the title's name was in to pay for it and they would have had to find that person but that was four four people yeah. ago four owners ago so there's this whole like system of dysfunction not to mention the fact that now we have an unhoused family that literally has no place to be they were on our night shelter wait list they were waiting to get into homeless shelter um, emergency shelter. We didn't have a space open for them. And so now we had a family that has no RV and no shelter. It's the middle of winter. We're not going to put them in a tent and call that shelter. What do we do with them? Right. And so that's kind of, I mean, that's the issue in a, in a, that's that's a, a yeah. bundled. I mean, that's, I think, a really great example of just what kind of lunacy happens when we can't figure out how to coordinate in a way, or we can't kind of figure out how to I shouldn't say lunacy, but more like impact what happens, you know. Yeah, and this isn't the only, I mean, you know, we won't go into more examples because I, I, I do want to talk about, you know, solutions and, and what the current state of things are, but um, what? Oh, just, but can I share a few data points? Yeah, no, yeah, let's, yeah, So, and because that example is, is just one, but um, 
the partial data I have is that this is 17 impoundments of people living in their vehicles in 2017 and another 17 in 2018. And then anecdotally, I, I know of at least, at least six this year, and that's only what I know personally. But the point is, that's only part of the story because that's only people whose cars were impounded under what's called our prohibited camping ordinance. However, there's a whole different section of our local ordinances that has to do with what's called storage on the streets. That is a separate ordinance, and that is also used to impound vehicles of people living in their vehicles. So, you know, we're 17 is a grossly understated number. So just to put mm-hmm. it in perspective, yeah. you know, that's many, many, not just families, but whether it's a single or a couple without children whose lives are completely upended, yeah. like Eileen's story. Yeah, that's huge. And I appreciate the data. I think that one of the things that, um, you know, whenever you get any sort of change made, that I think there's people that rely too heavily on the data and people that rely too heavily on one anecdote. I think that we need to marry the two, figure out a way to, to, to use all the information to affect positive change. Um, so, uh, so speaking specifically about the program now, is the parking program still in existence at St. Vincent de Paul? Or like what, I mean, is there, mm-hmm. I know that we had talked somewhat about there yeah. being some funding challenges and things like that. Um, so the program as it stands is, an, it's supposed to be a 90-day program that we get money from the city of Eugene to help um, support both singles and families to safely park in sanctioned areas so that they won't have to deal with the impounding so that they can legally be there. We provide, we get just enough money to provide a porta potty and a trash can for each person that's parked. Um, For singles, it's a lot of like warehouse areas and business sort of park areas. And for um, the families, if you see like um, RVs parked at churches, that's probably in our parking program. Mm -hmm. So it's it's, a lot of churches will open up a couple of parking spots Mm -hmm. for our families and we can put them there. Now that program is supposed to be a short-term fix for a long-term need, right? It's Mm -hmm. not supposed to be um, long-term housing solution. And um, so the singles program is still going on. We have singles living in cars that are at different scattered sites across Eugene. Um, in, in January, I decided that our, our family program was going to be shut down. And so right now it is on hold. And the reason that I made that decision is that what was happening is that because there isn't there isn't any funding for case management dollars, and the case management is really the most critical piece for navigating families or individuals out of homelessness, out of the crisis of extreme poverty. And without that, without someone that can make a point of contact, can do the goal setting, can do the, the empowering cheerleading, it, there's very little movement that happens. And so what we were finding is that we were, fi- we, were, we were having families that were staying in our car camping programs for six, seven, eight, nine, ten months. And to me, that's just not okay. We can't, we can't put people in cars and say it's okay for that extreme amount of time. 90 days maximum in my mind. You know, it needs to be a short-term fix, and then we have to find mechanisms right. to, to get them stable. Um, but, but that has to come by way of case management. It's not going to happen any other way. 
And we were finding that as families sat in these car parking spots, because these are their vehicles and also their home, they don't have the same sort of supports that one would naturally get if you're in our overnight shelter program, mm -hmm. where you're getting food every night, you're getting touch points from um, staff members, you have a case manager who is contacting you every single week, you're not getting those touch points. So that's number one sort of um, hardship. But then number two was that when families are in these confined spaces for that long of a time, we, start, we started seeing other things happening, like truancy would increase. Mm -hmm. um, DHS involvement would increase, so that's mm -hmm. child welfare. Um, and we also would see developmental delays start happening with kids who were literally like little babies strapped into car seats because it's the only safe place for them to be. They don't have a place to be put on the ground and roll and play, mm -hmm. um, which was impacting their development. Yeah. And so for me, I couldn't, I couldn't allow that if we had no mechanism in which to shorten the length of stay. Yeah. And so that's kind of where we're at. And it's, it's unfortunate because it is a need. There are families that are still living in vehicles and they're sort of scrambling to find safe places to park. But I couldn't sanction it from our organization because I know it's not best practice. I know it's not best practice to put someone in a parking spot and then have no ability to help give, meet their needs and to move them forward. Um, and so that's that's where we're at right now with the with the family parking at least, and we're we're you know we're working on trying to find solutions um, with the city of Eugene, but a lot of that comes down to funding. Yeah, and so what um, I, I guess what does that look like? Like what can we be doing? Um, I mean, what are, what are some of the ideas being thrown around about like what the what the future of this program could look like or, or what? I mean, I, I know that there's you know talks with the city of um, you know of creating a more permanent homeless shelter. I mean, that's years off uh, optimistically, um, but um, you know if if we've managed to get it approved. But what does the the what does this look like for right now? Like, what can we be doing? So. You know, I think we have to find a way to stop taking people's vehicles when they're clearly being used as their only form of shelter. And as Eileen said, this is putting outside, falling outside of St. Vincent's programs, but well, I think funding so their programs can provide the level of service that needs to be provided. But we have to keep in mind that's still only a small subsection of people mm -hmm. who are living in their vehicles. My understanding is the wait list for fam people without children or individuals is like 75 people plus. Mm -hmm. So that's 75 people who, not all of whom involve vehicles, but many. And so those people alone who are already on the list are scrambling, like Eileen said, to find a safe place to park, mm -hmm. often illegally. So then they're always on the run trying to avoid the police. Mm -hmm. And and I would say there's there's just some, we've talked about the cost with tow companies, and the $90 a day becomes very quickly insurmountable. There's also some, you know, kind of obstacles and almost a level of ridiculousness with notice. So if your car is impounded due to a prohibited camping violation, you aren't informed of your ability to request a hearing with municipal court directly. It's sent to you via mail. Well, if you're unhoused, you don't, that whatever address is on record isn't a viable address. Probably so, not a lot of them prioritizing getting PO boxes either. 
Right. And so most people don't even know they can go to municipal court, which is a somewhat informal process where there isn't possible opportunity to get their car and get their car quickly and possibly even have the fees waived. Um, You know, so there's some aspects of of kind of the process that I think somehow needs needs to be changed. There's also, I won't go into details on this, but there appear to be violations of our own policies mm-hmm. where that, that once again, if our own policies were followed, fewer people's vehicles would be impounded. And this is by our own, you mean like city law or city ordinances and things like that? Yes, yeah. and EPD policies. Um, and breakdowns with communication when someone's desperately trying to find their vehicle when they discover it's been towed and they don't even know why and then they don't know how to find it and some i've seen some people lose days in the phone calls back and forth trying yeah. to locate their vehicle um, and so there's certain aspects of the process but of course the bigger issue is we need to somehow find ways for more people to either legally park or if they're parked illegally to find another solution besides towing. so what um what legal solutions might there be? I mean, I mean, have other cities like even thought, or has this been a thing where you sort of say we, you know, maybe make it illegal or against some kind of ordinance to tow a vehicle if it's a person's primary residence? I mean, obviously, I could see a slew of NIMBYs coming out against that sort of policy if you were to try to get something like that passed. But that's the kind of thing that we can <laughs> help fight if there was if there was something on the docket that we were trying to get passed. You know, I mean, what. What, or, or maybe something that I'm not thinking of or whatever. I mean, is that even a thing or is that? So I haven't seen just prohibition on impounding vehicles mm-hmm. because the, the countervailing policy is responding to residents' complaints, which right. is they're not supposed to do anything unless it's in response to a complaint that's been made. So mm-hmm. EPD is not supposed to affirmatively notify some someone that they're going to have their vehicle impounded if they don't move it within a certain amount of time. But um, they, so since it's driven by complaints. And the fear and the public perception is that, you know, I mean, to play devil's advocate is that all of these RVs are filled with drugs and drug dealers and they're, they're turning they're the neighborhoods into slums and they're just unsightly. Yeah. They're, they're sac- you're compromising neighborhood integrity, whatever that means. Um, right, and, whatever that means. Right. <clears throat> but so some of those fears are real. There are instances of people, you know, doing drugs, selling drugs out of their vehicles. Those are other violations though. So then, so where there's a public nuisance, illegal activity, that triggers other ordinances, and therefore, if it means impounding the vehicle because those other ordinances that go to what you're talking about with respect to kind of the neighborhood wellness, health, safety, and welfare, then there's other avenues. But right, just because someone is living in their vehicle is not only unjust, but it creates these other problems. Mm -hmm. So I will say there are a few cities around the country that I'm aware of that have tried to create, not just tried, they have created a legal camping spot. Mm -hmm. So where a certain number of vehicles can park overnight. You know, one place, one city, I believe it's San Diego, you still have to move your vehicle during the day. And so that obviously is problematic, especially for some of the RVs. Mm-hmm. It's just not feasible to 
leave your vehicle and then potentially you're illegally parked during the day. Mm -hmm. but, but I will say that is a step in the right direction because at least it's creating more spaces for people to be safe. Mm -hmm. um, and so your question, I'm hopefully we'll have a more um, comprehensive answer after I continue to do more research. Cool. Because I'm convinced there has to be a better way and there must be other best practices out there that other cities are doing mm -hmm. besides what I just mentioned. And I want to make a plug too that, you know, I've gotten approached by several Oregon cities who have wanted to know how we have run our parking program. So I do think that there is um, a goodwill effort being made by yeah. the city of Eugene, by EPD, by the Lane, by Lane County to help support this effort. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that, you know, in terms of the spectrum of where we're at, Eugene is actually probably more progressive than the majority of cities out there. That's yes. And but they yeah. are making special efforts to be proactively trying to help yeah. um, this, this situation. So I, I want to make it clear that I, I do wholly believe that. Um, and you know, there's there's some there's some more things that we can do to help make the mm -hmm. process better. And I think part of that is figuring out that communication piece. You know, one of the things that I would love to see is if we could get funding to have an outreach person um, who's working with you know, from my from my perspective, it would be families who's working with families who are parking. That that way we could we could make first point of contact. We could get them hooked up with um, resources. We could get them hooked up with services prior to having any sort of interaction with EPD or getting mm -hmm. that call from a neighbor who's frustrated that they've been there for three weeks right. or whatever it is, three days. Um, you know, I think that that could go a long way. And it could and it yeah. could also be the thing that instead of EPD impounding, they call that outreach person and right. they're there in a minute. And that's Similar their job. Similar to the they're, way that, that 911 dispatch now includes um, cahoots. So it's like right. they, so that we're responding to the actual issue that, that might be needed rather than just sending police out, which is a, you know, like you said, they're doing the best they can. They've got their own resource challenges and things like that. I'm right. sure they would rather right. somebody else, you know, take right. care of it. They're not equipped. They're not they're not a social worker. They're not. They're not equipped to show up and deal with this like complex situation where a family is, you know, having their home taken away. Right. They're that, so. they're there to respond to the ordinance, to the law. And right. They might be doing that, right. and that's their job. And so I respect that. And it's a it creates this whole issue where it's not just a burden on the family in the hoops, but it's it's there. It's an expense that we are all footing. Ultimately, EPD is footing it. City of Eugene is footing it. The tow yard is footing it. The social service agencies who then have to go into our client assistance funds that could be used for something else are now footing it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, how can we create creative solutions where we're working together to kind of cut that out before it even happens? Mm -hmm. It would be my, yeah. my And the, another great idea, I mean, another great point about that idea is it's consistent with one of a few of the points in the TAC report, mm -hmm. or I should say a few of the points in the TAC recommendations about the need for more outreach workers to meet people where they are as a way to divert these cascades of problems. Right, because that's the thing is that with our car camping program that we recently closed, there was an ask of our families to come and do case management at the center, but the reality of that is that the burden is being put on the shoulders of our families right. who can't afford gas, who are at a church across town, and they have to figure out a way to get to first place. It was just too of a heavy ask. Yeah. So if we, getting people to where they're at, meeting their needs where they're at, is how we're going to make that difference. And, you know, I also think that 
especially on the family and that I know I keep saying that because that's my that's my wheelhouse but we are at a really unique moment with a lot of families where if we can keep they're at a high level of functioning if we can keep their family intact if we can help wrap around support so that they can stabilize and get out of the situation you know we're also talking about saving money in the long run there as well because it prohibits it it cuts you know it it ends that cycle that otherwise can continue on and on and on. Well, I, I really appreciate all the insight that you guys have shared here. I really like, um, you know, all the information that we've had. Uh, I think that um, this is definitely, you know, one of the one of the heavier uh, shows that we've had just in terms of exposing the reality of the situation to people in our city. And I, and I really hope that we can, as a city, make more decisions uh, that are in the best interest of the city as a whole, rather than, you know, um, the, the, this sort of mindset, this, the, the NIMBY mindset of like, oh, well, this, this one person camping outside or near my house is an inconvenience to me. Therefore, I need to fight it and get rid of them no matter the cost, as opposed to, um, which I think that there's probably cities out there that have done that, but I want to be the kind of city that doesn't do that. And, mm-hmm. and so I hope that we can continue to support programs like this and, uh, and you know, get the word out about them so that more people can, can know what's going on. So um, any closing thoughts before we uh, sign off here? I just want to thank you for yeah. initiating this, not just this podcast, but just your effort in general. And yeah. it's, it's these kind of efforts that really can help make a change yeah yeah i hope we 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 can affect some positive change we've got a couple of events coming up we've got um a uh, sort of a, a accessory dwelling unit meet and greet coming up at Viking Braggart, uh, or uh, Braggart, I think it's called, um, on Willamette. Uh, and uh, that's this Friday. You can find the event for that on uh, our page, uh, facebook.com slash Yimby Yes. Um, and, uh, and we're going to be talking with Alexis Biddle, who is a previous uh, podcast uh, guest, about, um, uh, you know, accessory dwelling units and, uh, and what we can say to City Council on the upcoming uh, forum. On, on Monday the 20th um, and uh, and that that meetup at uh, at the brewery is going to be on the 17th this coming Friday so um, uh, we'll be probably uh, well, now that I think about it this podcast will probably be going up uh, with not much time to spare to respond to those events but uh, hopefully you will uh, see and hear about them in other ways and uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today yeah, thank you thank you mm-hmm.